Well, this morning, we are blessed to have with us the Gideons. Yes. So we have with us Bill, Gary, and Tim. Um, Bill's going to be sharing with us in just a moment about the work the Gideons are doing. I had the privilege of talking briefly with them before the service and praying uh, with them for the service. Um, and one of the things I learned is that um, all three of these men served, served in our armed forces. So could we honor them for their service? Thank you all for your service. Thank you, Pastor. Bill, uh, <clears throat> Bill's going to be sharing with us. He was a TWA pilot for over 30 years. Guess what one of his first questions was when he showed up this morning? Where's Greg? Where's Greg? <laughs> Where's Greg Tyler, the other pilot? Well, God was gracious to save Bill uh, back in the 60s, living in Southern California, out of the movement that became known as the Jesus people. And he's been teaching the Word of God for nearly 50 years. That's a long time. Amen. And the last 20 plus, he's been serving at the Wright City Church of the Nazarene. Um, we've had Bill share here, so he's no stranger uh, to this pulpit. We've had him share here quite a few times over the years. Every time the Gideons contact me, my email back to them is, always starts with this question, is Bill available? <laughs> because Bill is a greatly gifted man of God, teacher of God, and does an amazing job giving us an update to the Gideons and the work that God is doing through them. Please give it up for Bill Collette. Thank you, Pastor. <laughs> uh, dearly beloved, this is a joy and a blessing to be here with you this morning. Uh, several years ago, the Gideons had a major scripture blitz in the city of St. Louis, and as a result, there were hundreds of Gideons that came from around the several states to pass out testaments and Bibles in the city of St. Louis. We had a speaker on that occasion, his name is Tom Meyer, that addressed us as a group and spoke about his experiences as a Gideon International Field Representative. In that capacity, his job was to go into new areas of the world where, uh, where evangelical churches were just starting up and taking uh, Bibles and training men to be Gideons so that they could share the word of God in new areas of the world. So he had a number of great experiences to share with us. His first duty was in uh, South America. And he related uh, that on one occasion at one of these training, uh, Gideon training seminars, a lady came to him in the middle of the, the day and showed him a testament that she had been given when she was in the fifth grade. She said she took it home and put it on the family bookshelf. 23 years later, her mother fell ill and she went home to take care of her mother, found that testament, <laughs> and began to read it to herself and to her mother. And in very short order, uh, she was wonderfully saved by the word of God, as was her mother. And that kind of opened the door, and this lady uh, told Tom that she shared it with a dozen other people, and they had all signed their name in the back of her testament. And so he said to her, that is truly amazing. I would love to have something like that. And she said, oh, it's just too dear. I couldn't possibly give it away to you. And as it turned out, later in that day, she came back to Tom, walked up to him, and she placed that testament in his hand. And she said, God told me to give this to you. That's the way God works. And then Tom related that throughout his entire ministry, before crowds of even thousands, he would show the power of God working through his holy word with his testament. And he, that day when he told us this, he pulled it out of his pocket and showed us that. The next area that Tom served in was in Africa. If you're going to minister in Africa, there's one hard and fast rule you have to be mindful of, and that is don't drink the water <laughs> because you're going to be sick very sick. And so uh, he was in Tanzania, 
and he had to take a, a bush plane, a small light plane, six or eight passengers, out to a small town uh, in the surrounding area somewhere. And he landed there, and there were a handful of Gideons that met him. And they took him in the village. It's the heat of the day. They gave him a, a small room uh, to wait out the heat of the day. And uh, when he got settled in the room, and they, they left him there by himself, he realized he left his water on the airplane. Kind of a panic situation, but he said, he sat down on the, on the cot that was there and said, Lord, give me the strength to make it through this day or two without water. And about that time, a big black man walked in the door with a bag and handed him this bag. And Tom looked in it, and there were two two-liter bottles of water in the bag. And he said, did the Gideon send you? And the man said, no. And he turned to walk out the door, and Tom said, wait, wait, how did you know I needed water? And the man looked at him and said, God told me to bring it. <laughs> this is so typical, amen, this is so typical of our God that watches over his ministers as they work and labor across the face of the globe. He spoke to the Gideons that evening, and they had no idea. They'd never seen or heard of a man of meet, that met this description. And so Tom said, I hope to meet this man again, or an angel, as the case may be, in glory. After that, uh, he, or during that period of time when he was in Africa, the Soviet Union collapsed. This was the end of 91. And all the nations in Eastern Europe that had been under communist subjugation were were now free, and so he was posted to that area to develop Gideon camps with evangelical churches all through all those Eastern European countries. He had some great experiences there and learned a lot of lessons. And some of the things that he told us, he told us a lot of the evils that, that go along with socialism and communism, but, but a couple of lessons that he shared with us. Uh, first, everybody is fearful they are afraid to do anything for fear they'll stand out, call attention to themselves, and then become the object of the secret police or something like that. So there was a, an element of fear that pervaded all those societies. And the other thing he told us that really impressed me, he said, I, I could divide every person uh, in the, the Eastern Bloc countries into two groups. The first and largest group is those that had never heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew nothing about God. And the other group, a much smaller group, were the persecuted Christians. And so he had a, a tremendous work cut out for him in that time. And he related a lot of stories, and I'll just try to pass on a couple of them. Uh, in Bulgaria, Bulgaria was the poorest of the communist countries. It was the least developed, uh, and even, even all the other eastern countries looked down on the poor Bulgarians. And again, in one of these uh, sessions where he's training men to become Gideons and pass out uh, scriptures, uh, there was a, an older gentleman that came up to him uh, at, the, at the close of this training session and handed him an, an envelope. It was the size of an envelope that you could stuff bills in, and it was obviously well-worn. And, and Tom took it, and, and the man said to him, oh, you, you count that later. And he said, I want this to buy scriptures for my people uh, because that's the one thing that the people of Bulgaria need more than anything is the word of God. A amen. Even today, we look around the world, and the thing that the world needs now is the Word of God. Uh, another occasion, and I'll, I'll relate to you, uh, he had been in Warsaw, which is the capital of Poland, so we're gone from the southern, southernmost country to nearly the northernmost country in the Eastern Bloc. He'd been in Warsaw, and he had scheduled a meeting in Gdansk, which is in the north of Poland, the following day. So as things worked out, he had, had to take a night train to Gdansk. And uh, of course, he's now he's been working all day. He gets on this train, and it's a communist-style train. It's 
not properly heated and it's got wooden bench seats and needless to say, he doesn't get any rest on this trip to uh, Gdansk. And as he gets off the train there, it's early in the morning now, uh, people just scattered almost immediately. There's, there's nothing there, nothing's open, nothing works. Um, <laughs> it's truly discouraged, he's tired, he's discouraged. And in a fit of frustration, he confessed, he said, I closed my eyes and shouted in this empty terminal, does anybody speak English? <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, Tom, that was really not the thing to do. I mean, let, <laughs> you know, uh, you need to come to me, Tom, and ask for help. And so he's saying, Lord, forgive me. And when he opens his eyes, there's a man standing right in front of him. And in perfect English, remember this is Poland now, in perfect English he says, may I help you? <laughs> and, and so Tom explained that he needed to go to this church. He had a 10 o'clock in the morning appointment there. They had no idea where it was. He had an ad, a church name and an address. He had no idea. So the man took him out in the street because there were no cabs or no buses running and found what we call a gypsy cab. It's people that, that would hire their car out so that they could get enough hard currency or enough money to put fuel in their car for the next day. And so they found a man that would take them where they wanted to go. And Tom said, would you please come with me because the people at church will have something to eat and drink or it's, you know, it's early in the morning. And, uh, and, and please come with me. So the fellow did. He went and climbed in the car with, with Tom. And on the way there, it finally occurred to him, why were you there in that terminal by yourself? And the man said, well, I, I came into the city this morning myself, and I needed to take a bus to another town where my grandson was being baptized today. But the buses weren't running, and so there I was. I, I couldn't get to where I wanted to go. Uh, and Tom said, oh, my. You know, ask the driver, while they're still on the way to the church, ask the driver if he'll take you to that town and wait there while you have... Uh, well, you have the baptism and then bring you back. And so they spoke in Polish back and forth, and sure enough, the driver wanted the, wanted the money, and he was willing to do it. So the story, of course, is that here are two men of God. They needed each other to accomplish the mission that was set before them. Isn't that wonderful? God, amen. God has given every one of us to be the light and life to all our friends and family and neighbors and share the gospel with them because the time is short. Our Lord is coming back soon. I could say a lot more, but I'll just say I love you. God bless you. And thank you for this opportunity to share the work of the Gideons around the world. Pastor? <laughs> Bill. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 today. You can turn there with me. Starting in verse 8, it says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work that you're doing to the Gideons, thank you that they're taking your word and getting it out to people. And we pray all those Bibles, all those New Testaments, all those portions of Scripture, uh, that they would be read and that they would be used by you, God, to change people's lives. Even as we heard with some of these stories today, God, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we pray today 
you'd pierce us with your word. Whatever word you have for us, let us hear it. Let us not pray about scriptures going out and then not receive your word the way you want us to receive it. So let us be the receivers and then let us be the senders and the goers as well. Bless your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, uh, came under fire this past week and had his Humanist of the Year award stripped from him that he had earned some time ago. He tweeted, Is trans woman a woman? Purely semantic. If you divine by chromosomes, no. If by self-identification, yes. I call her she out of courtesy. Apparently Dawkins' science is not woke enough when it comes to sexual issues. And remember what I said last week, right? There is a battle over the dictionary. Who gets to define the words and who gets to define reality? There is a little humor here because having been stripped of the award, uh, Dawkins went to scrub, from, to scrub the award from what's called the curriculum vitae. It's like a summary of your educational um, accomplishments and publications and all the awards and honors. So he's like, well, I, I guess I need to remove that one from the list. And as he's going, which he has quite a long list, as he's going through the list, he realizes that he had never listed it. <laughs> so he tweets back at the American Humanist Society, I dumped you, you didn't really dump me. <laughs> um, it is interesting as some of the well-known atheists and unbelievers and different people who would consider themselves much more liberal than anywhere near conservative have pushed back some of the, uh, against some of these sexual issues, including the gender issue, how people have responded to them. Martina Navratilova, amazing tennis player. She's won 18 Grand Slam single titles. Um, she, she, she expressed concern that this great athlete expressed concern that for trans women competitors who had gone through male puberty, she said the physical advantages were pretty obvious. And they labeled her transphobic. I mean, and, I mean she is uh, an avowed lesbian. J.K. Rowling, you probably heard what books did she write? Harry Potter, good job. <clears throat> she treated out, if sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. Think about that for a minute, right? If sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. And she's come under fire for that and other tweets that is pushing back against this reality of transgenderism. So there's a battle for the dictionary. Words matter. Their definitions matter. You know, and as you think about this, the distortion of sex. Think about this. I was kind of reviewing biblical history. Um, all these issues that plague our culture, most of them, maybe all of them, most of them revolve around sex and the family. I mean, think about that for a minute. These issues revolve around sex and the family. And the enemy himself has been distorting sex going all the way back to Genesis. He's been messing up the family going all the way back to Genesis. I mean, how quickly does it get distorted? I mean, you get Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and by Genesis chapter 3, like, the wheels are off the vehicle. We've totally been derailed. So he messes up the family. Then by chapter 4, we already have polygamy introduced. You know, Adam's, one of Adam's progeny. Then by chapter 19, you have homosexuality is mentioned and discussed. By Genesis 34, you have rape. By Genesis 38, you have prostitution. The enemy doesn't care how sex is distorted, how the family is distorted, as long as it is distorted. So he is fine with any distortion. And here's the thing. Anytime we end up distorting sex, it ends up directly affecting the biblical understanding of marriage, and it undermines marriages. What's going on in the culture 
is working to undermine your marriage and your marriage. That's what it's trying to do. This is not us. Sexual immorality, the breaking down of the family, that's not who we as believers are. And here in this passage, we see that we are of the day. Look back at verse 8. He says, since we belong to the day. Brothers and sisters, the deeds of darkness thrive in the darkness. And we're to put them away and we're to have nothing to do with them. So I want to look at a couple words today as we talk about the battle for the dictionary. I want to look at a few words that we see repeatedly grouped together in the New Testament and that are going to give us some insight into how we're supposed to walk with the Lord. My title for my sermon is Live in the Day, Not in the Night. So how are we going to live in the day? Well, we're going to live in the day with the virtues that Paul here instructs us about. Now in verse 8, he goes on, Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We would call this the trio of virtue. The trio of virtue. Faith, hope, and love. Now in the Old Testament... And we've talked about this before. We've talked about the trio of goodness. Anytime you talk about the attributes of God and you talk about his goodness, there's really three attributes that kind of fall under that banner of goodness. You all remember what they are? It's grace, mercy, and patience. That's the trio of goodness when we talk about God's attributes. But here we have the trio of virtue, faith, hope, and love. Now these three appear repeatedly throughout the New Testament. And when they appear, it's really given us a picture of the ideal Christian character. Let's look at just a few of them. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5. Hold your place in 1 Thessalonians. These will be coming back. But Galatians 5. And as I read these verses, I want you to look for those three key words. Faith, hope, love. Verse 5, Galatians 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So we see that they're, they're joined together. They are the trio that walk out the Christian faith. Look at Colossians chapter 1. We'll see a similar thing. Starting in verse 3, Colossians 1. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There again, faith, hope, and love. I mean, they're, they're conjoined together. They go together very nicely. And what's the idea? This is how we're supposed to be. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Talking about Jesus who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So again, we see the faith, we see the hope, we see the love. One more place, probably the most well-known, 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's talking about the spiritual gifts. And he ends 12 by saying in verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Like the higher gifts? What, what's the higher gifts? He says, well, I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he goes on, on a, a short discourse 
regarding love. But then notice at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Again, we see them conjoined together. So that brings us back to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5, we have it mentioned, but I want you to notice something. Turn back to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Because you're going to see that this is how Paul began his letter to the Thessalonians. In verse 2, chapter 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he, he literally starts the letter after the, the formal introductions and, and greetings, which was how every letter began back then. He jumps right into it, mentioning faith, hope, and love. And then, so we go through chapter 1, we go through chapter 2, we go through chapter 3, we go through chapter 4, we go th- and now we get to chapter 5, and he's starting to wrap things up, and he really is. We get to chapter 5, verse 8. So at the end of the letter, Paul circles back to this trio of virtue and mentions it again. You could actually argue that it's like a giant inclusio, so that he mentions it, and then he basically tells us for four and a half chapters what faith, hope, and love look like. And then he, and then he ends, ends the inclusio. He starts with it, and then he ends the inclusio saying, hey, all that in between is about walking with the Lord. It's about faith. It's about hope. It's about love. Friends, we are blessed by God himself to have help in our walk. And I don't know about you, but if I'm in a battle, which we're in a spiritual battle, I want to be equipped. And think of the ways that God has equipped us. Just for a moment, think of the ways that he has equipped us. I mean, he forgives us of our sins. They've been, they've been wiped clean. That, that's, that's an equipping. Because it, think about if you didn't have your sins forgiven and you're trying to walk with the Lord, that, that's, that's going to be challenging. You're walking with that burden of sin. He cleanses us from top to bottom. I mean, think about that cleanses, washes, renews us, regenerates us. He gives us the righteousness of Christ. Right? Not, not your righteousness. You ain't got no righteousness. He gives you the righteousness of Christ. He's equipping you to walk the walk. He's equipping you to do battle. And think about this. You have direct access to God. Did they have that in the Old Testament? They didn't. They didn't have that. The high priest, right? Once a year, access to God. You, every single minute of every single day, of every single breath you take, full access to God. The Old Testament Israelites didn't have that. God's blessed you to have that. And then think about this. He gives us his Holy Spirit. I mean... You have the Holy Spirit. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. I mean, just dwell on that for a little bit. Because he's dwelling in you. But dwell on that. So, I mean, God has more than fully, and we could go on, there's many more things we could mention, but he has majorly equipped us for battle. And then, how else has he equipped us? Well, he's equipped us with what I'm going to say is is the, the trio in our life of faith, hope, and love. Okay, because notice, go back to 1 Thessalonians 5, notice what he says as we keep going through verse 8. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We are wearing this armor already. Having put on, past tense. It's something that happened. When? Well, when you got saved. There's one more thing that God has done to equip you. We are wearing this armor already. All right, everyone say, I'm wearing the armor. But are we wearing it rightly? We got the breastplate of faith and love. We got the helmet, the hope of salvation. So we already have faith, hope, and love. That's our position. It is who we are as believers. What did we talk a little bit about last week? 
Our position affects our practice. Our position affects our practice. Okay, if you're an unbeliever, that's, that's your position. Guess what? That, that's going to affect your practice, how you live. That's why we, we shouldn't be surprised when, when unbelievers act like unbelievers. But, but, but it's also true for us. Our position as a blood-bought child of God, cleansed in the blood of Jesus, redeemed from the pit of hell, that's our position is now to be in the kingdom of light. And that's going to affect our practice. It only but can affect our practice. So if you're a believer, you do have faith. And you do have hope. And you do have love. But what we want to do is we want to develop those things. We want to grow in them. We want to nurture them. So we want to make sure that, that this armor that we have, that, that you're supposed to be wearing, that you're doing it. That you trust in Christ. Make sure you're wearing the armor. Make sure you're wearing it. You've put it on, but like, are you acting like you actually got it? That's like trusting in Christ, walking with him. And act like you're wearing the armor, like our culture fights against you. But we're not, we're not living for the culture. We're not living for ourselves. We're living for God. And then believe like you're wearing the armor. You're not defeated. You are not defeated. So these are really, when you think about it, these are defensive weapons. You know, the breastplate to shield you against attack, the helmet, again, a knock against the head. But when we talk about faith, hope, and love, these are fundamental Christian virtues. You walk in faith, hope, and love. You have these qualities. The question is, to what extent do you have them? Because, I mean, I know some mean, grouchy old people who read their Bible. And I know some mean, grouchy old people who pray quite a bit. And I mean, I, I know some mean, grouchy old people who go to church every single week. But, but I'm not seeing much faith or hope or love in them. So maybe they have some external things that, that they were taught to do, and they, they can check off a box. Friends, God is, is very much concerned about the internals. Is because he knows that if the internal is there, it will lead to the external. So you, you can check off that box all you want, but that doesn't mean that there's something in here. It doesn't. God wants to make sure you have the faith, hope, and love here first, that you're working on that, and then from faith and from hope and from love, you will actually walk out the commands of Scripture. Think about it just for a minute. You're like, man, I, I'm not doing a good sh job sharing my faith. Yeah, I mean, that's an obedience issue. But, but what is it ultimately grounded in? It's, it's one of those things. Faith, hope, or love. Or maybe a combination. It's an area that you need to grow. Not, we always think in, in the, the results, I need to grow in, in sharing the gospel. That's true. But really, that means you need to grow in one of these things. I need to grow in my love for God because my love for God will encourage me to share the gospel with my neighbor. I need to grow in love for my neighbor because that will encourage me to open my mouth and share with them. I need to grow in hope, the hope of salvation. Why? Because if I have that hope, then I'm going to want that hope for other people. And maybe my faith is so small, it's like that little mustard seed. I need to grow in my faith. Why? So I, I can trust the Lord more to help me open my mouth that he's going to give me the words to stay in those situations. The fundamental Christian virtues, these fundamental Christian virtues, faith, love, hope, this is the defensive armor that will ensure that you and you and you and you are prepared for whatever might come our way. Whatever might come. So, you know, we talk about, oh, I want to grow in my relationship with the Lord. I want to grow in my relationship. We'll, we'll start right here with these things. Faith, love, and hope. Grow in these things. It's kind of a good barometer of how you're doing. I mean, we can have external things that can be a good sign, too, how we're doing with being in the Word and studying it and praying. But faith, love, and hope, I mean, these are the things that are characteristic. You don't have, actually ever see it's like uh, a characteristic of a Christian in the New Testament is, is reading the Word. Now, I think it is a characteristic. But we do see very clearly laid out faith, hope, and love will be what we see in the life of every believer. Our position affects our practice. Having faith and hope and love, it'll affect 
what we do. It affects how we act. It produces action that lines up with faith, hope, and love. Let me just say a brief word about hope. And I've mentioned it before, but I'll, I, I'm going to mention it anytime I'm discussing it because I think it's important. Hope, when you look at biblical hope, is not as often as it is in English a kind of a watered-down wishfulness about the future. You know, you think the Cardinals are going to win today. I, I hope so. You know, no, no certainty. You know, you, you hope so. But when, when Paul and other writers use this, it's a content word. It's full of assurance of the absolute certainty of the believer's future. Absolute certainty. Say, so you see, hope equals absolute certainty. Absolute certainty of the believer's future. What is that absolute certainty based on? Not, not on themselves, but on the death and resurrection of Christ. So when we see this phrase, the hope of salvation, it's not like some vague, oh man, I, I hope I'm saved someday. I hope I am saved. No, it's, this phrase has to do with one's certain future based on God's saving work affected by Christ. Are you hearing me? Well then say amen. amen. Thank you. Because, my brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Look at verse 9. I want you to see what you are destined for. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So one, we're not destined for wrath. Now, when, when we talk about God's wrath, this is not a biblical term that refers to an emotional response on God's part. A lot of times when we think about wrath, we think about losing our cool. That, that, that's incorrect when you're thinking about God's wrath. That's an attribute of God is his wrath, but it's not an, an emotional response. It's a retributive justice that is the necessary corollary of people rejecting God's grace and mercy and ultimately God's own son. Think about a judge who hands down a verdict. I mean, is that usually when you see judges, I actually, when I think of judges, I don't actually think of judges as, as mean or wrathful or anything like that. But they're handi handing down a sentence, which is a verdict of wrath, so to speak. It's a punitive, uh, it's a punitive decision. And how do they usually hand it out? I mean, rather stoically, actually. But it's the same when we talk about God's wrath. It's not an emotional response. Oh, you did this to me, so I'm going to do this to you. No. It's God's retributive justice. So when we talk about wanting justice, you know, our culture talks about justice. It doesn't really have an idea of true justice. Because I'm not sure if we want justice the way God defines justice. Because it's a scary thing. It involves his wrath. And all of us, saved from the finished work of Christ, we deserve his retributive justice. We deserve it. Fully and rightly, we deserve it. Yet God in his mercy, in his grace, in his patience, that tree of goodness, he, he saves us out of that. He saves us out of it. So that the wrath will still be poured out, but only on unbelievers. Not on you, and not on you, and not on you. So there will be destruction. That's what it says earlier. It will be sudden. But it's not for the believer. What do we learn here? There's judgment and wrath is coming. It's being held back for now. But it will arrive. And it will be for some people. Friends, let's, let's save those unbelievers. Let's be used by God to reach out to them. None of us in here should want any retributive justice. We should not want God's wrath poured out on a single soul because God has redeemed them. God uses us to preach the gospel. God uses us to save those people. Let's be used by God for that. So we're not destined for wrath. He keeps going. What are we destined for? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You will obtain salvation, not wrath. Salvation. Who is it through? Jesus. Well, don't you have salvation already? I think most of you do. Don't you already walk in that salvation? 
I think most of you do. But do you have the full rewards of that salvation? No. No. When's that going to happen? When Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back. Right? What is 1 Corinthians? We didn't read that part, but 1 Corinthians 13, like we're seeing through that glass dimly, right? Then we'll see him. How are we going to see him? Face to face. Face to face. That, that's a reward right there, friends. That's a reward. So it's given through Jesus. We've got to focus on that because guess what? No Jesus, no salvation. N-O, no Jesus. N-O, no salvation. But just like that t-shirt from many years ago, K-N-O-W, no Jesus. K-N-O-W, you know salvation. All right? We've got to have Jesus if we want to be saved. Finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. Look back at chapter 3. Because we're also destined or appointed for something else. We'll start in verse 1 just to get a brief little bit of context. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, oh, destined for what? Well, for the afflictions. Keep reading. He makes it clear. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So, we're also destined for affliction. And popular Christianity and feel-good Christianity doesn't tell us this truth. And then it catches people off guard. Um, wrath and affliction are completely separate. Wrath is God's retributive justice. Man, I got through saying it so many times. Messed up that once. His retributive justice and the affliction come through the hands of men. It can actually come through the hand of God, I would actually argue as well. But the afflictions that he has in mind here are those from believer, or unbelievers. So the afflictions we are also destined for. This can be lost on us if we're not careful. God will save us from the wrath. Ultimately, he'll save us from the afflictions. But in this life, we will have the afflictions. In this life, we will not have wrath. In the next life, we won't have wrath. Make that clear. And then finally, I want you to notice what it says in verse 10 who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Brothers and sisters, you will always be with Jesus. Think about that. You will always be with him. When you're old and decrepit in a nursing home, you're with Jesus. When you're in prison, as some of us might end up for the gospel, you're with Jesus. When you're in the hospital, sick and feeling alone, you're not alone. You are with Jesus. So friends, th this is a great hope for the believer. Wherever you're at, you got Jesus. Always Jesus will be with you. Never alone, never forgotten. There will never, ever, ever be a point where you are without Jesus. And then just as a side note, I do want us to notice this. Whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So the asleep, you know, that's just like a term for being dead, right? A nice way to say it. I've actually had some believers over the years ask me about uh, soul sleep. You know, like when, when we're dead, we're not really with Jesus until he comes back. Then we're finally with him. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a bad teaching. That's a, I'd actually say it's a false teaching. There's no such thing as soul sleep. Here, this verse clearly points out, whether we are awake, like right now, or asleep, dead, we might live with him. There's no moment we won't be with Jesus. Okay? The people that have gone before you that are believers that have died, they're with Jesus right now. 
Think about, uh, let's just look at it. I know it's just a small rabbit trail, and occasionally I like to pursue them. So just two verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He starts out in verse 1 of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Amen? For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that rather we be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So we're either home or away, right? Ain't no third option. Home here, on the earth, in our body. Away, where? With the Lord. One more verse, Philippians 1. Y'all know this verse, Philippians 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So, I mean, Paul's wrestling with this. Like, here, I, I got service, I got ministry to do, but... I'd actually like to go be with the Lord. Now, that'd be a little odd if he's just going to die and be in the ground for 2,000 years until Jesus comes back. No, what's he saying? My desire is to depart and be in the ground and asleep for 2,000 years? No, depart and be with Christ. That, that's what he's struggling with. Fruitful ministry here, depart and be with Christ. There's only two options again, away or home. That was my small, my small rabbit trail. Friends, Christianity, can we just get this through our heads? Christianity isn't cool. If you want to be cool, Christianity is not for you. Christianity never has been cool. 2,000 years of Christian history, it hasn't been cool to be born again, sold out, God-fearing, Jesus-seeking person. It just hasn't. So let's get past that. Let's get past it. You young people, you need to get past it. It will be a thorn in your side. It will be a cause for your stumbling. Get past it. God wants us to walk in faith, hope, and love. And here's, here's, here's my final exhortation to you. Here's my final challenge. One, all those things I mentioned earlier about all the things that God has done so that we can actually do battle and walk in battle and face battle, that has to be the prerequisite for us to even think about growing in our relationship with the Lord. Because of what God has done, therefore we can do. Dot, dot, dot. You hearing me? It's back to the, the position leads to practice. But faith, hope, and love... What I want you to do, even right now, is to think to yourselves, of those three, which one am I weakest in? Which one am I weakest in? And then as the worship team comes up right now, I want us to spend some time just by ourselves asking the Lord to help us grow in that virtue. Asking the Lord. I mean, I don't know about you. I want to grow in my walk with the Lord. Yes. You want to grow in your walk with the Lord? Yes. Well, I hope you guys pray about growing in your walk with the Lord, right? 
You have not because why? You ask not. So let's take a moment by ourselves as the worship team starts to play. Let's take a moment and ask God for these virtues in our life. Let's ask God for the, the one where we're struggling the most. And all y'all are struggling, all right? Because I'm your pastor. And I know it. God didn't even have to specially reveal that to me. <laughs> we're all struggling. So let's just admit it and let's humble ourselves to ask God for his help in this area. So whichever one it is, let's pray now. Pray by yourself, to yourself, and ask for help with that virtue. I'll pause for a few seconds for you to pray, and then I'll pray. Lord, we need faith, hope, and love ever-present in us. And we want more of it. And God, those, thing, those things seem like just gigantic mountains in one sense. And then we can look at our own lives, and it's just like we got little, little molehills of faith, hope, and love. Well, we're asking now to pour a little more dirt on those molehills and build them up a little bit. Give us more faith. Give us more love. Give us more hope, absolute certainty of who you are and what you've done. Increase our faith. Increase our love. Increase our hope. And God, forgive us at times for having a lack of faith, for not trusting you, for being loveless to our spouse, to our parents, to our children, to our friends, to the person at Walmart checking us out. Forgive us, God, for the way we treat people, even someone like the Walmart worker. We do thank you, Lord, how you've prepared us to live for you, to walk in this world, to be in this world, but not of it. Continue to fill us with your spirit to walk in this trio of virtue more and more. Amen.